My name is Andy. I help people live life on purpose. This podcast explores the mystery, beauty, and complexity of life through conversations with an array of incredible practitioners, all of them working at the edge of what's possible for humanity. This is a place for big dreams, bold creativity, and fierce hope. Welcome to the Wonder Dome. If you're inspired by this conversation and you'd like to see it reach more people, you can help the Wonder Dome take flight by sharing it with friends and colleagues, subscribing, giving us a high star rating, and best of all, leaving a glowing review. If you'd like to go even further, consider becoming a monthly supporter. You'll help me keep the lights on and support a wide range of charitable causes. You can learn more at mindfulcreative.coach. Thanks in advance for helping us inspire the world. My guest today is Elizabeth Sagren. Elizabeth is a senior staff writer at Fast Company, and her work has appeared in a broad range of publications, including The Atlantic, Foreign Policy, Foreign Affairs, The Chronicle of Higher Education, and Salon. Uh, We focus the bulk of our conversation today on her fantastic book, The Rocket Years, which was published in 2020 by Harper Books and explores the impact that choices we make in our 20s has have through the rest of our life. And we play with this wonderful insight kind of in, a, in some meta ways in the way that that shows up in our culture and our collective future. Uh, and we dig into her journey to this moment, which has been sort of by conventional measures, not a quote unquote sensible one. And she mentions some, some of her colleagues being like, you have a PhD in South and Southeast Asian studies? That doesn't make sense. And we explore how wonderfully on a deeper level, it makes beautiful sense that the study she did of traditional Indian poetry with this focus on women, gender inequality, when she did her PhD, links to the work that she's doing now in a journalist, if uh, not in explicit ways, then absolutely in implicit ways, that there are threads through lines that point us towards something essential about ourselves. And Liz is a global nomad. She's grown up uh, around the world. Uh, comes Her parents come from different cultural backgrounds. And she really stands for what's possible when we begin to relate to culture as a fluid, dynamic, movable thing. In the same way that our identity can be fluid and dynamic and movable, while also underneath all of that, there's something foundational and true and consistent that we can discover if we're patient and we trust ourselves again and again and again, even when it quote unquote doesn't make sense. So this is a really fun conversation, a timely one, given all of the unknowns in our collective future. And I hope that you'll enjoy it. So let's get settled in. And hear what Elizabeth has for us. Hi, Elizabeth. Hi. Welcome to the Wonder Dome. Thank you so much for having me. It's a, it's a wondrous place. <laughs> <laughs> yes, thank you. That's my hope. That was, uh, it was conceived in the spirit of creating wondrous spaces with my, my deep belief that in the midst of all the complexity and ambiguity we're navigating, having more space for wonder is going to be critical. Not, not in an escapist way, but really in a, in a holistic way. So mm-hmm. I, hope, uh, I hope that today continues to be wondrous for both of us as we explore together, and, and I trust that it will be. 
Yeah. I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm very much enjoying being in the, in the sacred space. <laughs> awesome. That's great. Well, I also want to give, give some love to our mutual friend, Steve, who introduced us. His instincts were spot on in that respect. And this is kind of one of the neat things about hosting a podcast. I remember someone like, uh, I can't remember who it was, but someone was sort of like snarkily was like, oh, everyone has a podcast now. And I was like, you know what? I had that same thought when I was going to launch this show. And then I was like, well, you know what? There's a million books and a million songs and a million whatever. So that's not a very good reason not to do something. Totally. And, then I'm, and now I'm kind of like, everyone should have a podcast. It's like, <laughs> what a cool way to have the conversations that you want to have with, with really interesting people that you might not otherwise get to. I think that the, in that question, there is um, this idea that um, that in order for a podcast to be successful, it needs to be um, something that, you know, that, that, that has a huge audience. Right. Mm. And I think implicit in, in that is that, you know, if there's a ton of podcasts, it's just harder to, you know, to build an audience or something like that. But I, I don't know if that really, I, I think that one thing that I've learned, and I think we're going to delve into this is that I think we should always be doing things in life because they're meaningful to us mm. and because mm. they're um, enriching and because we somehow feel called to do it based on the circumstances of our life and, you know, the skills that we have. And we sometimes should just kind of let the outcome work itself out. Like that's mm. not necessarily something we can control. Right. And so totally. I think that that's true with the podcast, mm. with the book, with anything that we do, we can only control what we put into it. Right. And for you, I think, you know, the pod, the podcast is like, it's, it's deeply enriching for, yes. for, for a lot of different people, uh, including yourself. So. Thanks. Yeah. I really appreciate you. I think acknowledging the show in particular for that, but also your, your wisdom and insight around the sort of if I was obsessed with having as many downloads as, you know, Krista Tippett or, or whoever, um, I'd be real bummed out because I don't, because I don't, <laughs> but instead yeah. there's just this really cool opportunity to sort of be like, Hey, the success is that you and I are talking right now and maybe other people. And, and actually I know at this point, other people will hear it um, <laughs> and trust that the, those who need or want to hear it will. So. Yeah. And that's true for, I think, everything that we do, like every little thing that we do, I think we can only focus on the intention we put into it and how meaningful it is to us. Yeah. Well said. Well, that feels, uh, Elizabeth, that feels like a really nice segue into maybe the place I was hoping to start with, which is this really wonderful book you've written called The Rocket Years, which uh, explores the outsized impact that choices we make in sort of our early twenties can have on our lives. And, you know, I just like, I, I know we, we, before we started recording, we were kind of both naming like the, the current moment, global complexity and uh, it's August, whatever, 18th, 19th, there's lots happening in the world for anyone who wants to do a quick Google. And we're aware of that. And I, and I want to talk about all of that. And I want to make sure we really make space for this wonderful book you've written, because I think it has some real perennial wisdom, regardless of kind of local context. And then also, I think it speaks to like things shift and evolve from generation to generation. So maybe we can kind of play with both ends of that, that polarity. Absolutely. Yeah. Cool. So, so maybe, um, I know you, you wrote the book, how long, how many, it's been, been a couple of years now. Is that right? It's been two years. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, uh, well, the book came out, uh, a year and a half ago. Uh, but if anybody knows anything about publishing, uh, I, it took me two years to write it. And so yeah. it's, 
it's been a, a kind of a journey over the last four years, you know, uh, thinking through all of these different, these, these big questions of how the big decisions we make in our 20s impact the rest of our lives. Yeah. And what was the, um, the sort of the moment, which might've been a single moment or perhaps might've been a, a sort of unfolding realization that this was your, your <laughs> particular way into understanding the human experience? So I actually have a very specific moment. Um, I was in my early 30s. I think I was 32. And I I remember it was a Wednesday night. And I was, um, and we had a a new baby. My daughter, Ella, um, had just been born. She was, you know, a few months old. And um, my husband and I had spent like ages trying to get her to go to sleep. And Finally, I think it was like 7.30, she was like asleep. And the two of us collapsed onto the couch and we stared out at what our lives had become, which is really, you know, like crushed Cheerios on the floor and, you know, a little bit of puke on our couch. And <laughs> and we thought, you know, um, th- it's a beautiful life that we'd created, you know, despite all of the chaos, but we weren't exactly sure how we got there because... Mm. Uh, just a few years before, when we were in our mid-20s, our late 20s, um, life had felt so uh, so full of open possibilities. You know, our, our 20s were uh, beautiful and chaotic and just, you know, I was traveling around the world. You know, he was exploring different career options. Uh, we were We were trying lots of different things out. And then somehow, in a very brief period of time, we had made all of these decisions that had shaped um, the life that we had and that wouldn't just be the life for right now, but you know, the, the decisions we had made had created the life that will be our lives for the next decades, right? Mm. So we had mm. married one another. We had made that choice. Mm. Uh, we had settled into careers that we were happy with after a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of struggle in that area, trying to figure out what it is we wanted to do. But we had found jobs that we liked that paid enough so that we could afford the, you know, extremely expensive cost of having children in this country. Um, and so, and then we had our child and it was a beautiful life. Um, and I just didn't know how we had gotten there and the choices I had made to get there. And so that just kind of launched me on, this exploration. So over Mm. the next two years, Mm. I spent a lot of time thinking about my own decisions and just generally what we know about the decisions that we make in our twenties around career, around, um, love and relationships around family, around even things like politics and our Mm. hobbies, um, and all of the things that really make up our life. Um, and, and I also looked at a lot of social science data because we actually have a lot of really interesting insights about uh, how we make those decisions and then how those decisions play out in the years to come. And I put all of that together in this handy book. Um, and, and, and here we are. Love it. <laughs> what was the, in that moment where you and your partner looked at each other and uh, like across the pile of crushed Cheerios and, <laughs> and spit up, you know, to, to the extent you're comfortable, like take us in a bit more to the, to what was so catalytic about, about having this, like, how did I get here? Kind of vibe. Is that right? Yeah. It's, it's so interesting because, um, 
because these are actually like those are pretty profound moments you know it, it, yeah. it, on the surface it was just chaos and i think we all have these moments in life where you know you're just kind of going through life and um you know and, and just kind of trying to get through a moment by moment but then when you when you're able to sort of take yourself out of that uh you know, of, of that specific experience of like sitting there on the couch and just kind of thinking about it. Um, you know, it was really profound. You know, I had chosen this person that, um, that I had married. Right. I mean, that was a huge life decision and one that would have implications for, for a long time. Um, then we chose to have this child, you know, who is, who is amazing and wonderful and fills our life with so much joy. Um, it was in that chaos and in all of that craziness that I realized that I had done these things, that I had made these choices that are huge. I had brought a human into the world, mm. right? Mm. Um, mm. That's a, that's an enormous thing. You know, this, this person is going to be shaped by my decisions, by the partner that I picked, by the house that I've chosen, by the career choices I've made. Yeah. Um, and so I think, you know, I, I, I had this kind of existential experience where I thought, you know, this is it. This is what I've done. This is the life that I've created. And it's so beautiful in so many ways, I think. Um, you know, I, I I love, I mean, I do love the life that I've created. Um, I'm very ha- happy with these choices. But I think in in the chaos of life, we often don't um, see, see life in this way. Mm-hmm. And I think we mm-hmm. also don't realize that this is really an expression of um, a lot of choices we made along the way. And really it's kind of an expression of ourselves, a manifestation of who we are, who, who we have created ourselves to be. Right. Because ultimately like, that's what we're talking about, you know, in our twenties, our twenties are this critical period when so much of who we are solidifies, um, you know, as children, you know, we are shaped by things outside of ourselves, our family, um, the circumstances that we don't really have that much control over, but as we edge out of our twenties and uh, of our teens and enter our twenties, we suddenly have a a new kind of control um, over who we are and what we want to be. And it's this really powerful and exciting time, right? Where we're Mm -hmm. trying to figure out, you know, based on all of the, uh, the circumstances that I was given, right. And all of the things that, that I had no control over, what am I going to make of that? Like, what am I going to say goodbye to? Mm. What am I going to choose to be, you know, all of that. Right. And so we, we, we somehow solidify a sense of self in our twenties and then we manifest that with the choices that we make. Mm. And so when I was sitting there on that couch, I was really, I think part of what I was thinking was that this is the life that I've manifested, but because of the, 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 the thinking that I did, the sort of musing about who I am and, and here we are. And, uh, and it's really beautiful. <laughs> it's really nice. And I think, and I think, um, I think looking back and, and thinking through those choices can only enrich, um, you know, the way that we approach the life that we have, and it can also help us change things, right? Because, you know, as we, as we start living this life and as we stop really thinking so much, because we're in the thick of changing diapers and, yeah. you know, trying to like yeah. submit reports at work and, you know, doing all this stuff that we're trying to do, I think we can sometimes fail to realize that we still are in control. We still have some choice and we can change things that didn't turn out the way we wanted. Right. Um, so I, I just think that, you know, all of that is really enriching. 
Yeah, I'm struck by so much. Thanks for for kind of zooming in on that 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 moment of sort of looking back and looking ahead. I mean, I'm struck. I'll speak for myself. It, how little I really thought about what I did in my 20s and early 30s, even that would impact my life. Like just the fluidity from deciding who you're going to hang out with or where you're going to live to who you're going to marry and whether or not you're going to have children together. Like the, the sort of second category of partnership and commitment and children. You just sort of, I just sort of, we just sort of arrived there. It was like in my twenties, I couldn't even comprehend that until suddenly I I could comprehend it. And it because you were in it, yeah, you're in it and it doesn't necessarily feel big. It's just sort of like, we're ready. Yeah. And of well, course, you, in some ways, you're, I wasn't ready at all, <laughs> but in a, in a way it was, it was re- okay. Yeah. This is like, and then you kind of get to this moment where you can look back and see the bigger story I sense is maybe what I hear you pointing to. Is that right? Well, I think that, I think that there, it's interesting because I think that there are two competing forces in our twenties. And I think particularly for um, younger millennials and Gen Z. So I'm an older millennial. I think I'm the kind of the last cutoff of millennials. Um, but you know, people who, um, you know, are now in their twenties and, and, and those who are in their teens moving into their twenties. Um, I think young people today feel a lot of pressure to make their Mm. lives good. Mm. And so I, and I think that that has a lot to do with in part how they were parented. Uh, you know, we are really fortunate that, um, you know, parenthood has really changed. Um, you know, in the past, um, you know, the, the parents were a little bit more distant, but as people started having fewer children and investing more in each child, we had these parents who gave us so much of their time and their energy and spent so much money on us. And I think, um, you know, as that has grown, that trend has grown, young people feel a lot of pressure to Mm. make sure that they don't squander that, right? So they want to make the right decisions. They want to pick the right career. I I think a lot of people know that finding a partner is extremely uh, important, right, in in terms of their um, financial stability, their lifelong happiness. And I think that informs a lot of kind of the dating behavior that we're seeing now in terms of you know, just feeling like, you know, like, like you're in this really stressful moment where you're on a date and, you know, the person says something that that immediately says to you, okay, this person is not going to be a great life partner. Um, Mm. It could be a good hookup, but might not be a good life. And it just kind of informs whether they pursue relationships. Right. Um, Even though on the surface, it all seems very casual. Mm. Um, Mm. So So there's this kind of like simmering pressure underneath the kind of casual shapes everything. And I think that there are other things in society that are making, um, this even more important. Right. And I think part of it is the, um, the, the growing inequality in the country, um, which I, it's, it's so horrible, but that's been happening, you know, over the last 50 to 70 years in this country. And I think what young people are also feeling is that, you know, they really understand that it's important to make smart decisions so that they end up on the right side of that horrible divide, this huge divide now between, Ugh, you know, yeah. the rich and the poor. And, um, and and so all of this is kind of simmering under the surface. So that's one side of things. But at the same time, 
there is also this very natural impulse to want to go out there and just make all their mistakes. Uh, and, and it's this, it's this strong tension on the one hand between mm. making all the right decisions mm. and between, mm. on the other hand, um, using this very brief period, really in the grand scheme of things to, to, you know, to like date all the wrong people and like, <laughs> you know, like make bad decisions with your career. And like, and so in my case, um, you know, I, I, I felt this as well. And I think it's just kind of accelerated now for, for the younger generation. But for me, you know, I was very much focused on, on the one hand, trying to find a really meaningful career, um, and, you know, trying to find a partner that I could settle down with. And then on the other hand, you know, just breaking up with like perfectly nice boyfriends to just like, you know, because for on a whim, because it just, you know, and then, and then, and then finding people who are who on the surface seem very, very inappropriate um, <laughs> to date, I, you know, in the middle of, you know, trying to find um, a career, there were times when, you know, plan A wasn't working out. And so then I tried a different career and then I just gave up altogether. And I was like, you know what, um, I'm just going to quit my job and backpack through India for, mm. you know, the, mm. a couple of months and just see how that goes. Um, I, I felt constantly tugged between this desire to make sure that my life worked out and this desire to, on the other hand, um, see the world, see what was out there, uh, you know, explore. And, um, and even, I think, you know, maybe even make decisions that on the surface you know, society was telling me, or my family was telling me were not great decisions because there was part of me that really wanted to see what that meant and what that looked like. Um, and I think the conclusion that I have come to, uh, in writing this book and in thinking about this is that both of those impulses are extremely important, um, for us. And I think they're both extremely useful. And I think they're, um, I, I think that we actually, you know, they, they might be evolutionary almost, right? Because mm. sure, you want to make really good decisions, but when you're in your twenties, you really haven't experienced that, that much of life. And so you're really, uh, you know, you're trying to make decisions with not a lot of information about what is out there and, and who you are. And so it is in that impulse to go out there and see the world and try new things out and test your identity in different ways that you learn things. And as you learn things about yourself and about how the world works, you, you, you develop knowledge that you never would have had so that when you are confronted with a really important life decision, mm. um, mm. you know, when somebody, um, you know, wants to know, you know, like when, when you're thinking about a career, whether you should, you should take a particular path when you're in a relationship that's, that's moving ahead and you're trying to decide whether to commit to this person or not. Um, when you and your partner are trying to decide, you know, are you going to be the kind of couple that has a kid or not? Mm. Um, when, when you have those decisions that you have to make, all of that knowledge is so crucial because it helps you make those decisions with so much more certainty. Um, so I think that both of those experiences are actually just really important. I love really appreciating how you're articulating this right now. Like there's a sort of kind of spiral like quality of, of it's not about this or that, but rather the way in which these two very deep impulses uh, can braid together to move us towards more wisdom, more self-awareness, more capacity to know 
intuitively our path versus not our path, right? Like it's kind of, there's some, there's a, I can't remember I think it's called like the prospect refuge study, but basically it was like some researchers who just went to a bunch of young kids, I think probably like, you know, five to eight or something like that and showed them pictures and said, which one's your favorite? And, and then just started doing some pattern mapping, which were the kinds of pictures that kids in general who at this point haven't received a ton of acculturation. Um, I mean, maybe there was some bias baked in in terms of which kids they asked, but you know, and 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 pretty consistently, kids would point to these landscape images that had mm-hmm. a combination of uh, of refuge. There was like uh, trees or flowers or fruit and a pathway, maybe a little house with like smoke coming out of the chimney. But also prospect that that in the distance there is a horizon, sun shining through clouds, maybe a glimpse of the ocean, you know, mountains, a valley, and like there's something about almost archetypal about this kind of way in which all of us both want stability and security and safety, a home, and want adventure and discovery and unknown, and it's like the two together are human. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of us are maybe way, way kind of on the adventure, the, the, the people who are like diving, you know, into caves underneath the, uh, the, the stormy oceans, like at an Antarctica or something are like maybe way out on the, the prospect end of this spectrum. But all of us have this in us is what I hear mm-hmm. you speaking to in a really beautiful yeah, way. Yeah. And I think our twenties are a really interesting time because we actually have, the ability to, to follow that adventure. If we want to, you know, we have, we have a lot more time than we ever will, um, to pursue those things. Um, and it's an interesting thing. So, 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 so that's a really beautiful thought. I have a much more, um, um, sort of, uh, scientific concept that, uh, that comes up in the book, which is just that, um, there's this concept in, um, in, I think it's it's in the social sciences, basically, about how, you know, the decisions that you make now limit the decisions that you will make later on in life, mm, right? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so you start with kind of like a full spectrum of choices, but then you pick, you know, a particular major, Um in college. And that, that sort of, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't completely limit what you could do. You could always do something radical and, and change career paths, but that becomes less likely. It's just harder to do. Yes. You know, some, some statistics at play here as you make, as you make more and more choices. They, yeah. They narrow, they narrow. And yeah. so what's so exciting about your twenties is that you haven't made most, most of those decisions yet. You know, you haven't really picked a path. And so there's just all of these options ahead of you. Um, so, so that's one thing, you know, you haven't dated that many people. So each new person that you meet and that you go, you, you date and you have a relationship with, you know, changes your, the way that you see the world in a particular way. And that may, that might, you know, impact who you choose to date next. Right. And, and so on. Um, and so I, I think it's really, it's this really amazing period, uh, where you can sort of, uh, explore your passions and your, you know, and, and choose, you know, a path. Um, and, and as you get older, I think it just becomes a little bit harder to do that. But what I would say is that I think that in writing this book, it made me realize that I think we put far more limits on how adventurous we can be as we get older, Mm. uh, in ways Mm. that we maybe don't necessarily need to do. Right. Mm. So in, in just like thinking back to my twenties, 
And just remembering how awesome it felt to just be like, you know what? I'm, I don't like the job that I'm doing right now. It, this isn't a particularly like financially sound decision, but I'm just going to take all my savings from the bank and I'm going to backpack through India for a few months and see if I can sort myself out that way. And it was the best thing that I ever did. Right. Um, I think as we get older, we, you know, we, we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to, you know, to not screw up and not like ruin the life that we have. And I, I understand that I'm in, I'm in that place now, but I do think that that following our passion is something that we allow ourselves to do more in our twenties. And I think we should maybe remember that time and, and continue to try and follow our passions as much as we can later on, like even now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think they're there. I'm, I'm really struck with like, there is a, a natural narrowing of options just by virtue of we have a fixed amount of time. And if we're lucky, you know, we have more time and that, and that time is with people we love and exploring and all of whatever, all of it. Right. So yes, the narrowing is there and um, you can make a choice at 40 or 50 or 60 that feels to many people who have not consciously made it that kind of alternative choice can feel really silly or radical or risky or out of the blue or whatever. But, but there is something really liberating about like how, what, like almost the question that's coming up for me is something like, what might my 25 year old self, or maybe I'll give myself a little extra maturity. What would my 27 year old self have done in this situation? Totally. You know? And I think like just some, something simple. So, so I talk a lot about, so there, we have, have a whole chapter on um, hobbies because what's really interesting is that the hobbies that we pick in our twenties often end up being the hobbies that we, uh, that we stick to for the rest of our life. Um, and it's so random because I don't think anybody, like, you know, we might be thinking carefully about career and, you know, partners and the serious big issues, but very few of us are very strategically planning out our lifelong hobbies, right? We're just, we're just coming upon them super randomly, but those hobbies end up actually shaping um, the, 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 the passions and the hobbies that we do for the rest of our life. And that's just because, hobbies often involve some degree of learning, right? So you have to like learn. So take knitting, for instance, like you have to sort of like take the time to learn how to knit. If you want to, I don't know, whatever it is, you know, like dirt bikes or whatever sport you're choosing. Or in my case, I really loved traveling to extreme you know, places and backpacking for weeks. And that, that takes a level of skill. You know, you have to learn how to manage itineraries and know who to talk to and know what to eat so that you don't get like dysentery, um, stuff like that. Right. And so, so just because you've, you've taken the time to learn that, um, you ended up coming back to those because when you have less time and energy later on in life and you want to do something that makes you happy, you kind of go back to these things. It was kind of mind blowing to me because I really did not think about my my hobbies at all in my twenties, but Speaking of that, I loved traveling in my twenties. It was the thing that really made me happy. And I think that, you know, as I've become a parent, there's this idea like, oh, you know, how are we going to do, like, I, there's no way that I could, you know, take my daughter to India and backpack for, uh, you know, a couple of months. Like that just seems insane. Like how, are you, how is the diaper situation going to work? Like, <laughs> what are we going to do about formula and all this crazy stuff, right? But why not? Like, I mean, I, I don't know. It's like we impose these kind of things on us and, you know, there are yeah. people who, who, who don't, you know, abide by that and continue to follow their passion. So I, anyway, my point is just that I think when you reconnect with your 20 year old self, when you ask your 27 year old self, 
what would, what would he do? You know, what would she do? Um, maybe that's a, like, that's a good moment to sort of like, remember what made you so happy in those moments and what was so fulfilling and what was so meaningful and then try and, and, you know, and don't limit yourself by the artificial things that we create now, you know? Yeah, totally. And I'm struck that like, if anyone's in a position to pull off the, the international adventure with a child in tow, it's the person who's already devoted a lot of time and energy to like getting really good at, at navigating across multiple cultural, cultural contexts and, you know, like living, living pretty ruggedly and independently for weeks at a time, right? Like that skill set doesn't have to disappear just because you have a different context or a different set of responsibilities. Totally. And if you love surfing and you've put that on hold because you have kids, like, you know, you're the best parent to like teach your kid how to surf, you know, just whatever, right. Whatever it is that, that you maybe put on hold because you you got too old for it or whatever, like maybe remember why you loved it in the first place and see how you can continue bringing that into your life. Right. What is it like almost to, to bring the spirit of it in, even if the specifics don't work. Totally. Mm. I, you've mentioned now uh, a couple times having spent some time in India, which which it sounds like was maybe maybe parents and other people who were with with good intentions for keeping you safe and on the <laughs> right track weren't psyched about. But I also know you have this background in, in cultural studies. Uh, you've got your PhD, and it looks like you you focused in particular on on gender studies and also um, like exploring India academically. Is that right? Am I yes. getting that right? So how did yeah. those two, like, just tell me more about this choice you made and why that was so important to you and how that intersects with kind of your work in social sciences more broadly. Totally. So I think, I think my story, uh, it really encapsulates um, the big struggles that many of us have with career. Um and so I'll, I'll tell you my story and then I'll, I'll, t- I'll talk a little bit about how it really, I think, applies to a lot of different people. But in my case, I, um, I, you know, I grew up loving literature and um, I was very, um, I'm half Chinese and I'm half Indian, but I grew up all over the world because of my father's job. So I, you know, I spent my elementary school years in Paris, high school years in Jakarta, I was a little bit disconnected from my own culture because I was in all of these different places. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so I went to college and it was amazing because I was able to, you know, to spend a lot of time uh, learning literature and literary studies. And I also was able to take a course in Tamil, which is the, it's, you know, the language of South India and happens to be my, my ancestors language. Mm, so it was mm. crazy because, you know, I, like my parents like grew up sending me into these schools and I was learning French and you know, I could speak French fluently. And they were like, it, it was at college in America that I learned my, wow. <laughs> my native language. Wow. But anyway, it just felt so right. You know, I just, I was learning all of this stuff. And, and, and so it solidified in my head that what I wanted to do, that my calling, that the thing that I clearly had been, you know, designed to do in life was to go and get a PhD in classical Indian poetry. <laughs> Duh. Like it was like, it was like so obvious. Um, <laughs> so like, cool. you know, like it was just like a, a brilliant moment where everything seemed to come together. Like why, you know, like why would there have been this course in Tamil if I wasn't designed to, you know, to, mm. to be a, a scholar mm. of ancient, of mm. ancient Tamil. So anyway, I got into my PhD program at Berkeley where I studied with the foremost scholar of, of this particular um, um, Indian literature. And it's this beautiful literature from the third century 
that um, is really, so there's two types of, of poetry from this period. There's poetry of war, mm-hmm. um, which is of, you know, the outer life and, you know, and, and basically the, the world of uh, kingship and, and, and territories and geopolitics, you know, the, the exterior world. And there was also poetry of the inner world, which is all about the love and relationships and sexuality. Um, and I was particularly, I was drawn to both. I was drawn to the fact that in this culture, they, they separated these two spheres, the world that's outside of ourselves and the world that's inside of ourselves. But I was particularly drawn to the love poetry because it was often written in a woman's voice. Mm. And it was very open about love and sexuality, which I think was really interesting because anybody who's familiar with Indian culture today realizes that Indian culture tends to be very restrictive about what women can do and how modest they need to be. And, um, and, and certainly does not allow them to talk about their own sexuality at all, or, or think about their sexual desires in this kind Mm -hmm. of way. So I was really interested in understanding that and also in trying to unpack how that, you know, that, that happened and, and how we're now in a, in a world where, you know, the culture is so much more conservative. So it was fascinating to me. So I did that. Sounds that incredible. It was, it was amazing. And can I just, can I pause for a second? Cause I just want to, and maybe you can even like, I don't, I don't want you to feel pressure to kind of give us your whole dissertation, <laughs> in the, but like, I'm really struck by uh, more generally uh, the ways in which we as a species hang on to certain things and then start to believe those things are real or true or, or eternal when in fact, they're quite culturally specific. And so just this, like, you know, I'm having this moment as like a, a, a white American guy being like, wow, so cool to discover that this is like ancient lineage of, of Indian poetry that spoke in the feminine and embraced this much, you know, this much more fluid, open willingness to talk about love and sexuality, like all of that. So cool. And I can't help but draw parallels to like our pretty hype. Yeah. You know, there's some hyper, we have puritanical roots in the States and they're, <laughs> And like, we have all these taboos around sexuality and norms that like, and it's getting up, like, there's just this wonderful analogy that I'm tuning into. And I'm curious well, how you play totally. with that. And I, I really loved, so, so that actually led me, so my interest in this particular area led me to spend a lot of time thinking about uh, gender and sexuality and mm. essentially like feminist feminism and gender studies. Right. Mm. And I loved reading the French philosopher Foucault. Um, and he had a whole, he has a whole a, a book, essentially a series of books called the history of sexuality. Mm. And I think the thing that struck me about all of this is that sex, we, we think of sex as this eternal thing, this thing that's like just part of the human experience that can't be changed. And that's because, you know, on some level, like our bodies haven't, haven't changed really that much over the last couple of thousands of years and the way that we reproduce is the same. But but what Foucault talked about is that there is a culture of sexuality, right? Which is which is mm. the culture in which we experience sex and the way that we think about um, relationships and the way that we think about pleasure, that is constantly changing. And that actually has a huge impact on the actual experience of sex, right? Like, so, mm. so this thing that we think mm. is, is like immutable and doesn't change mm. is actually trapped within a culture that is constantly changing. And I think that was n- no more apparent than in this, in this literature, right? That, wow. you know, 2000 years ago, 
people were talking and thinking about sexuality in this kind of interesting way. And I think one answer to that is that actually religion, this was kind of before Hinduism had become the main religion in this part of India. And so it was when, you know, religion came and sort of created structures around sex that, um, that people, you know, change the way that they mm. thought about mm. it. Um, but that, that was culture changing. Right. And, um, but anyway, so, so, so it's fascinating for me to study this, but I think it impacts, even though, uh, you know, as it's obvious now, I'm not a, a scholar of ancient India. This, this has changed the way that I think about sexuality, but about so many other things in life that, you know, there are things that we think of as unchangeable. So yeah. things yes. like, the role of men and women, um, yeah. or the way that, you know, like that particular things in our life work. Right. Um, so the, the way that we think about our relationship with our environment, the way that we think about, uh, our relationships with people of different, you know, ethnic or racial backgrounds, things like that. There's so many things that because there is some element that is tied to our biology and that is tied to things that we think of are, are unchanging that we somehow sort of fall into this pattern of believing that they cannot be changed. Um, But actually we need to separate those things from the culture in which they're created, because if culture changed between the third century and present day India so radically, then we actually have the power to change things again. Right. And we can keep changing things. Right. So basically it really is empowering because knowing that the way that we think about something as simple as sex changes means that we can change things. We have the power to, to reshape the way that we think about sex or gender or, you know, parents and children. Like, yes. ugh, there's so many things that we can think we can talk about, but yeah. none of these things are fixed. <laughs> I'm just having like a moment of one, like we've sort of stumbled into uh, maybe not stumbled, we've sort of explored into the, an area of real deep personal interest to me. Um, I just like the mutability of so much of which we tell ourselves is fixed is something I, I could talk a lot about. So I want to be careful not to just take <laughs> us there because I love that. But I'm noticing that uh, that what you're describing, that the first person experience you had, both in relation to your sort of entering into your studies of ancient Indian poetry and also the experience you had of like writing the book and the experience you've had of making choices. There's these, this sort of realization we can have both as individuals and as a culture that much of what we assume to be true and therefore just allow to shape our, what, what we like and don't like and who we hang out with and don't hang out with and what we're afraid of and not afraid of all of that actually if from the right vantage if we can see it can actually be worked with that we can actually start to make choices now that that like the future is going to change if anything we know no matter what that that a thousand years from now what we think of it what people think of as normal is going to be pretty different than what we think of as normal that seems pretty likely but the question is like to what extent do we in this moment right now want to consciously play with that dynamic versus just let it happen to us. And and so I'm curious, yeah, I'm just curious how you're relating to the present moment and these kind of scary futures that we're facing, but also maybe possible beautiful beautiful futures we could be facing. Like, mm. it's almost like we're in like a kind of cultural rocket years here as a species. 
Totally. Well, just to sort of finish the point about the the career yes, aspect of this, you. and then and then, you, yeah. and then we can come back to that. But that sounds that sounds really on point. But basically, you know, at the end of my PhD, I spent six years traveling through India, and then. Um, also working on this degree, it turns out, and I know this is really shocking to a lot of your listeners, but there are not a huge number of jobs in the field of classical Indian love poetry. <laughs> Mind blowing, right? Is, Look at which, how interested you are in this field, right? <laughs> yeah, which is, I think, is we could take as a commentary on one of the problems of our current culture. Let's like make more room for the study of romantic poetry in many. So- Wisdom traditions, but anyways, yes, not <laughs> totally, a lot of job yeah. opportunities. And so for me, um, you know, a big thing that happened in my twenties was trying to figure out, okay, I had this dream and I pursued it. And I was told by everyone, my parents, my, the culture, my professors to follow my dream and find work that is really meaningful to me. So I did that. I did the right thing. Right. And then it turns out that there wasn't actually a job for me in this <laughs> field. Um, and so I, I spent the next couple of years trying to figure out, like, do I just give up on even trying to find a career that I'm passionate about? Or do I do I still believe that there is something for me out there, right? Uh, so that was a kind of a, the big struggle, one of the big struggles of my 20s. And it turns out that actually that is a very common struggle. Mm. So there's tons, mm. everybody, I think. Um, there, a lot of people actually start with one vision of what they wanted to do with their life. And it's very rare that 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 actually works out like in a completely seamless way. It turns out that, you know, most people, you know, it turns out that, you know, you have these ideas about what you're good at or what you're passionate about. And then you enter the workplace and it turns out that that either there isn't something that specific for you out there or it turns out that maybe you thought that you really love something and you actually don't. And it takes a lot of courage at that point to stop and say, actually, I'm going to try something else, right? Mm. But that's what a lot of people go through in their 20s. And so the big data point that I found is that that people who face that challenge in their 20s um, and continue believing that there's something out there for them, so keep trying new things until they find something else that they're passionate about, it is those people who in their thirties and forties and fifties report having a lot of satisfaction with Mm. their careers. But there's, Mm. there, there are people who once they face that challenge, they, they sort of give up on the idea that, that they're, that, 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 that finding meaningful work is something that's going to work for them. Um, And so my, my big piece of advice to people who are in their twenties is that you are very likely going to hit a major roadblock in your career journey. Uh, and it's going to be devastating. It's going to feel like everything is doesn't make sense anymore. Like everything that you've done so far, all of the choices that you made, everything that you know about yourself, it's going to feel like devastating. And you're probably going to do a couple of jobs after when things don't work out that are not great, right? Like for me, I had to try lots of different things. I worked for a public relations firm that I very, very much did not enjoy. You know, I worked for a couple of nonprofits and I realized that I didn't work very well within that bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. Um, I Then I found journalism and it just, it all fit together. It was like, you know, I could use all of the learnings that I had had and I could do the thing that I love to do, which is write. And it all came together, but it took years to get there. Yeah. Um, so my advice to people is that, you know, you're likely going to have a roadblock you're not going to enjoy the transition from that to the dream job, but the dream job is out there. You just have to keep working on it. And 
the payoff is, is lifelong. So just, just pursue that. Mm. Um, but yeah, so, 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 so that's kind of like, the, really, the, I, <laughs> I love that really fucking good advice. <laughs> yeah, I know. Right. It's, it's really like, good advice. nobody yeah. tells us that everybody tells us that you need to go find your dream job and you need to go out there and, and do that. And I think that's wonderful. We're so lucky because in generations past, people did not think about the dream job. They just thought about what job is going to pay the bills. And, you know, so we're so lucky to even have that option. But what nobody tells you is that the dream job may not work out exactly the way that you want it to. And so you just have to keep pushing and trying to figure out what is, you know, what the match is out there between you and the world. So all that's yes. Anyway, one thing that I, I, yeah, go ahead, ahead. please, please, please. I just want to underline, I'm just noticing, um, like it strikes me that that there's something about you being called to to your studies and PhD, and then you writing this book, and now you're a journalist, and there's this sort of like meta skill or disposition you seem to have, which is to be able to understand a context and then paint a bigger picture about that context. And it might be might be a small close up picture, or it might be a big meta picture, but there's there's something about you, Elizabeth, that like, even though the dream job has evolved and changed and you've had the, the peaks and the valleys, there's this kind of through line that I'm sensing. Did you resonate with that? Totally. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely that. I, I love, like writing is the skill that I enjoy using the most. And I use it in this particular way, which is to take these big concepts and to communicate them in ways that make sense and that are applicable to people's lives. But to your earlier point, it's, it wasn't just the, I mean, that was all really important, just finding a path uh, in which I was able to do that. Um, I think that was really helpful to me and, and changed my life. I mean, I, I've loved being a journalist. I think I love it even more than academia. I just hadn't awesome. thought that that was possible. But it's also the content of everything that I learned. I, I think I have a different perspective as a journalist, as a writer, because of all of the stuff that we're talking about, about this idea that culture is changeable and mutable, right? And so whenever I'm like, you know, so I write for a magazine called Fast Company, which is a business magazine. And I I think I can bring a a different perspective because of all of this background, Mm -hmm. right? So I write a lot about sustainability and I write about, um, you know, gender and business. and And I write about gender more broadly because I'm interested in it. And I think, I think what separates me perhaps from other writers is that I, I do have kind of this academic tra- training about culture and, and cultural studies. And so it's so interesting to think about how really, you know, like we're, we, we're, we're in this moment and it is a bleak moment. Um, yeah. There's so much happening. And, and, and I, there are days when I wake up and I do feel, you know, disappointed about how the world is turning out. Yeah. But disappointing, I also think disappointed feels like could be an understatement, but yeah, I know what you mean. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. And how we're just letting the next generation down. We're just, you know, we're not, we're, we're just, we're not taking responsibility for the world that we've created. But I also think like, if you think about the bigger swath of history and like the larger expanse of time and how much has changed, you know, over time, I think that that is a very encouraging way to think about things, right? Like if you think about the way that we're dealing with, you know, 
race in the country, in this country today. And it's so frustrating when you think about gerrymandering and white supremacy, that's like rising up. And you think, you think more broadly about how things have changed over the last hundred years, 300 years, you know, 500 years, thousands of years. Right. Um, I think that's where you, you feel a little bit of hope that change actually does happen. And it, and it happens because there are individuals within culture who believe in that change and who believe yeah. in pushing things forward. And so I think that's really important to, to remember. Yeah. I mean, I'm really sitting with the kind of uh, both end required to lean into that, which is like both the faith that changed, I mean, change is inevitable. Like that's sort of like, Oh, if we just look at human history, yes, there's recurring patterns and there's maybe these, these through lines we can see, but, but culturally change is inevitable. We are not like culturally, we are not the people we were a hundred years ago, a thousand years ago, 5,000 years ago. We can just see that. So and there's there like people, that faith that it will there, change. There are people who are change makers. We know yeah. that. Right. Um, yeah. And sometimes we don't even know their names. I mean, they're, 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 you know, they're famous people who have obviously caused major change, but there's also, you know, tons of people who just, you know, try and think about the world differently and live differently and make sure that their children have a different way of thinking about things. And that over time and with enough people doing it, that, that is what changes culture. And so I think that is something that we need to cling to. Yeah. Yeah. And there's this, thank you for really underlying that. And, and there is just a felt sense of like, right now, someone in the world, many someone's in the world are starving right now. Many someone's in the world are facing direct, like aggressive threats to their life, right? Like there's this, like that can, that can feel really despairing when you have the life you have. And there is a fear, like that fierce urgency of right now, like there are people who are suffering and and how do we lean into that? So Mm -hmm. I'm just really, I want to like invite, I'm inviting myself and appreciating the way you're modeling and inviting uh, folks who are listening to say, it's not an either, or it's not like, Hey, we'll just wait until things get better. And, you know, we make some choices now that will make difference later, but like, I want change right now. It's, it seems to me that that it's that urgency and the sense in which we are in touch with that urgency that we can then, then sort of say, well, I can't change that right this minute, but I will have an impact on other people around me. And I have to make a choice about what is right now here to teach me that might mean something for the future. Yeah. And, you know, as a journalist, um, well, and I, so, so these days I write a lot about the fashion and retail industry, which is like, you know, when people hear that I, my first career was to be a, a scholar of Indian literature, they're like, that doesn't make any sense at all. But, you know, just having had this conversation that you can see the, the through lines of how yes. I got here. Yes. It, so um, it actually makes a ton of sense, right? Totally. Like there's like, yeah, this beautiful, <laughs> deeper logic to it. Yes, exactly. It just takes like an hour to unpack. That's all. So, <laughs> so that's basically it. But what I would say is that the thing that I'm most concerned about right now, um, I think everybody's concerned about it is, you know, climate change is here. It's terrible. And, you know, as somebody who writes about the fashion industry and the retail industry, I'm seeing, you know, how terrible, um, you know, these industries are and how, you know, they've created this culture of consumption that has led to, you know, all of these enormous um, 
you know, industries that are just so highly polluting for what? So that we can have closets that are packed with the the latest fast fashions, right? Um, It's really horrible and stressful. And it it is something that I like get actively stressed out about every day. Um, But I do, you know, I think it's really important. There are a couple of things that I have that I come back to. One is that we got ourselves into this mess over the last hundred years, you know, um, you know, it's just the industrial revolution and beyond. Right. And so in the grand scheme of history, like it didn't really take us that long to get here. And so mm, I really, mm, I wonder what the next hundred years are going to hold because mm, things, things have changed a lot in the past hundred years. And I also, you know, I think about how things are going to change in the next hundred years and how we might be able to, if we, if we, do this right, how we're going to um, reverse all of this, right? There, find creative ways to turn this around. And I also think a lot about my kids, um, you know, my daughter, and it's just kind of like, it's a stressful thing to think about the world that our kids are going to grow mm. into. Mm. And I, I wonder what she, what they're going to be dealing with in their rocket years, right? Like we had all of these choices. We were so focused on finding the right job and finding the right partner, I wonder if they're not even going to be thinking about that because they're just going to be dealing with what part of the country can I live in where I'm not going to be dealing with constant forest fires or flooding or hurricanes, but maybe their choices are going to be diminished because of that. Mm. But I also, in on my brighter days and my more optimistic days, I think, you know, like what if our kids are the ones who come up with a solution, right? Like what if we talk to them about these issues now Mm. and we prepare them for this future and they come up with a way to like sort of leapfrog some of these issues that we think are like unchangeable, right? What if they find some Mm. sort of amazing bioengineering technique that like helps us reverse a lot of this? Um, We kind of have to have faith and hope because otherwise, you know, otherwise there's no reason to get up in the morning, right? Yeah. Well, you know, that just everything you just said there, there's so much I want to underline. And so thank you for like speaking to the complexity, but also the the possibility that's latent, right? It, again, we're just right in, it's like, this is it. We're in this hyper-consumerist culture. It's, and it's never going to stop it. You know, it's going to reach a crescendo and everything's going to collapse, right? Like that is a story. And we can see the possibility of that story in, in the movement of history. And it's just like, you know, a hundred years ago, it was only a hundred years ago, the industrial revolution. And Hey, it was only, only, only 10,000 years ago, the agricultural revolution. So like what, who knows what's around the corner, right? right? So just this like kind of humbling ourselves a bit to not knowing is a wonderful reminder. And, uh, and I, you know, I hope wherever the future brings our children, um, that they don't resent this too much and that they like, there's this, maybe they do, maybe the bioengineering happens or maybe it doesn't, but but there's this wonderful opportunity for for life to keep unfolding and that like people know how to farm regeneratively like we know right now how to restore land people know the technology exists for carbon sequestration like we actually the technical know-how is here so there's something there's something in our hearts there's something in our vision that we can't see because we're so inside of it that, that I hear you speaking to that maybe people in the future will just be able to stand somewhere differently and go, Oh, it's this. And yeah, it's sad that I can't choose to fly around the world or fill my closet with stuff, but actually that's not really that sad because I'm in community 
with people I love and we're taking care of the land or, or uh, I'm, we're building a new way to, uh, to educate lots of people that's much more inclusive or we've reimagined organizations and corporations to be forces for good, right? Like there's all of these possibilities out there that don't, aren't just doom and gloom. So I appreciate you speaking yeah. that. Yeah, I hope. I, yeah, I, I like the vision that you're you're laying out, and I, we're seeing it now. You know, we're seeing all of these organizations explore, kind of going back, right, and kind of like thinking about how we just kind of grew so quickly that we didn't think about what it was that we were doing, and how wonderful for our kids not to grow up in a consumerist culture. I mean, that would be awesome. Like, how be much really time awesome. have I spent? thinking about like what to buy when that's like, and then it never makes me happy. Right. You know, like imagine, imagine a world where they don't have to do that. Like that would be great. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. Well, Liz, this has been um, really rich. And as I, as always the case with these conversations, I feel like I've, we've opened more doors than we could possibly (laughs) walk through. And I welcome more if, and when the time is right, but I just really want to appreciate your unique gift for, tracking these patterns of possibility and inviting other people into them specifically with your book, but just more generally in the way that you move through the world. So thank you so much. And yeah, I do really feel like you have created a wonder dome where people can have these conversations that you wouldn't ordinarily have. And I don't know, I feel like it would be I I feel like the world needs more wonder dome. So we should I think I think we should make it our um our mission to create them, you know, it, it doesn't have to be in a podcast form for all of us, but, you know, creating space for like good conversations with your friends, just take inspiration for the Wonderdom concept and Amen. bring it out into the world. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Well, someone, one of my guests recently uh, offline mirrored to me that they're feeling that there's something akin to this show in particular, but also this sort of podcast movement in general, like akin to like the salons in Paris you know, in the 18th or 19th century and like, you know, the sort of symposiums of ancient Greece and and likely we can trace the even further back to earlier cultures. Like there's something really important that we can't always see because it doesn't touch the level of national media. Like there are, there are, we need more places like this where people gather to be in connection with each other. So I love that totally. you're having that feeling on the show. That's part of the show's mission for sure. And I, well, thank and you for, I hope people yeah. listening and get that. I know they're yeah. hearing this with you. Well, thank you for having me. This is really wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Where, uh, Liz, if people want to find out more about your work, we can include it all with the show notes and stuff, but like where, where should they start? So first? you can find me at Liz Segrin, spelled S E G R A N on all the socials. Um, if you are looking for my book, it's called the rocket years, how your twenties uh, launch the rest of your life. And it's available in all the bookshops, all the places. Um, and yeah, and you can find my work at fastcompany.com. Amazing. Thank you, Liz, so much. Thanks everyone for listening in. Um, well, more to come, more, more in the Wonder Dome to come in the spirit of Liz's invitation. I hope you all take her up on it. Thanks for tuning in to the Wonder Dome. This podcast was produced by me, Andy Cahill, with support from Kelly Serqua, and audio editing services from John Nolan at Middle Mountain Studios. The theme song was written and performed by Todd Marston. You can find the Wonder Dome wherever pods are casted. If you dig what we're doing here, please share widely, subscribe, and give us some love in the review boards. And if you feel called to support this humble offering to the world, while also making an even greater impact on the lives of others, 
consider becoming a monthly supporter. Not only will you help me keep the lights on and keep this show going for as long as I'm able, but 30% of all member contributions go directly in support of causes like the Black Lives Matter movement, the United Nations Refugee Agency, and the National Resources Defense Council. You can find out more at my website, mindfulcreative.coach, where you can also sign up for my newsletter, learn about my transformational coaching work, and get plugged into exclusive offers and community happenings. In the meantime, I'm wishing you a life of purpose, power, and presence. We need you now, more than ever.